Today's program has been brought to you by Calavita. Think outside the bottle with Calavita, America's trusted family brand, makers of extra virgin olive oil and fine Italian food products. Calavita.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey folks, welcome to Food Talk. It is June, it's official, and um, what happened today? We are out of the uh, Paris Accord, apparently. Apparently. Apparently, yes, we're just going to, we're, yep. So, Mm. we're burning wood here at Roberta's, and we're going to burn coal, and the hell with the damn thing. The hell with the next three generations. Let them live with it. Anyway, we've got a good show today. We've got three guests coming in, so it's going to be bang, bang, bang. My first guest is going to be my first guest because she has to get back to work on the floor of a restaurant called Piora. That's in the West Village that I love. The chef is great. The wine list is great. Um, haven't met the owner yet, but we, we'll make that happen one of these days. Um, but she's new to the city, so welcome. Thank you. Welcome to Gotham City. You were lucky enough to be born and raised in New Orleans? I wasn't born there, but that's where I grew up. I, don't, I was born in Iowa, but we left there when I was nine months old. So. Good. So you don't, probably don't. What, Don't count it. Thank you. Not a many memories. So what, New Orleans, like what part, what quarter, what, what parish or whatever they call um, it? I grew up in St. Charles Parish. Uh, it's about a 20-minute drive from the French Quarter. My mother worked in the city. My dad worked out near where we lived. So you drove about a mile down one road to get to my subdivision that was just swamp on both sides. It was an interesting way to grow up. Seriously. Seriously, that's good. And the food culture back then was there. What, what's your Furman is a what kind of name? Uh, German. That's what I thought. That was been my guess. Furman or something like that. So, what, what was being cooked in your house? Um, usually, whatever they had time to scrape together. Both my parents worked, so it was you know. They, uh, my mom went through a Julia Child phase where, you know, she was doing a lot of her, <laughs> those different foods. We would have crepes sometimes for dinner. <laughs> yeah, I remember the crepe era. Yeah. You know, uh, luckily, both of them were really good cooks. My dad actually cooked more, loved to grill, loved to barbecue, you know, anything right. that was outdoor cooking. Because I think in New Orleans, I mean, I think the food and music is like the tooth, it's like the birthplace of so much jazz and, the, and so much of the, uh, you know, a big contribution to the American, like that fusion of... You have Canadian influences, Irish influences, Sicilian, Italian influences, a- African American. You have all this mashup of cuisines coming together. Oh, absolutely! It, it developed my love of food early on. I mean, they always say there that you know we don't eat to live; we live to eat. Well, you can. We signed up for that. So you find yourself in Chicago in college. Yes. And like most kids in college, they're looking for a job. There's not a lot of options, so you ended up working restaurant hospitality, front of the house. Well, I actually started as a bartender. Bartender. Um, I'm. I'm the sommelier with the punk rock past. I graduated from college and worked in punk rock bars and concert venues and all the places that you 
don't necessarily think I would have come from. Yeah, because you're pouring, like, Jaeger shots and vodka-based drinks and, like, things that I would look at and think they're basically abominations. Right, cracking PBRs. Yeah, just shitty beer and people are just trying to get drunk. Yes. So what what was the little... I know I read your bio, but you tell me again. What was, like, the... Like the little balloon above your head that went wine, wine. Well, I'd always you ended up at Charlie Trotter's, and this is like a odd kind of way to get in the, the back door at Charlie Trotter, right? Because I love to dive in head first. Um, I'd always loved food and wine, and growing up in New Orleans, if you went to a restaurant, you know, by the time I was seven years old, if my parents ordered a bottle, my sister and I've got a glass. So it was always something at the dinner table. Always, it was very normalized. Um, I've always my love of food took me to different restaurants. I love doing tasting menus and pairings. When my husband and I travel, we book our plane ticket, we book our dinner reservations, and then we book a hotel that's nearby. And I started realizing, like, I was loving all the bartending money I was making, and I was using it to spend on these events. You know, all of my money was going into food and wine, and there was just kind of this this moment of clarity where it's like, wait a minute, this is what I love, not getting people sloshed until four in the morning. Like, why not make a change? So I started looking at different jobs that were out there and seeing what the qualifications were. And two things I kept coming across was uh, the WSET, which is the Wine and Spirits Educational Trust, and uh, the Court of Masters Sommeliers. Looked into both of the organizations, bought a bunch of books, and started studying. While I'm bartending. And you're in your early 20s. Um, I was in my late 20s. Late 20s. Yeah. Okay. But it's funny because, but you still, at that age, you're still producing brain cells and can remember things when you study and read. Because I know, I mean, I keep meeting like you now that you, well, I mean, welcome to Gotham City, Christy. But there's, now there's, you're, that's like, I mean, Chicago's got a great scene, but. I keep meeting these young Psalms in New York, and I could, like, Victoria's one of them, Erin Healy, John George is another. I mean, they're all over the place who are, like, in their, barely into their mid-20s, and, you know, they, they pass their certification at, like, 21, 22, and I'm like, a big part of that is the ability to study and remember, because a lot of the master, a lot of that Psalm stuff is very technical. Yeah. I mean, you get into, I'm like, I love wine, and I could, you could blind taste me in France, and I'll probably do pretty well, and parts of Italy, I'll be pretty good, but, you know, you start asking me about, like, German wine regions and slopes and slate, and I'm like, no, no, I love Riesling and I love what, but I have no idea. That's that, that, that is like technical stuff. Yeah. So what? So how'd you get into Charlie Trotter? Tell me that story. So, so um, you start studying. So you start. You have books. You're bartending and you're, and you're reading about wine. And I'm just reading about wine. I'm and drinking it once in a while, but that's still you're not even nibbling it. Yeah, I got a job a couple of days a week at a wine shop, um, and then I managed to get a job at a wine bar as well. So, uh, so I'd left bartending, was just doing the wine shop and the wine bar. And I was, you know, look, going through websites as I like to and looking at people's wine lists. And I saw at Charlie Trotter's that they were always looking for great people. Just send your resume. And you think it's one of those things that's kind of like, oh, yeah, they're just putting that up to be nice. But it's like, hey, why not? What can it hurt? I'm going to send them my resume. I got a call two days later. That's crazy. Yeah. So it was just pretty much, I mean, you, you'll you guess in, in retrospect, just kind of luck. Like, they happened to be looking. Somebody saw your resume and saw something in it that we don't know what that was. And you came in for an interview. Yeah, I came in for an interview. I, I did a stage. And uh, the general manager, he was like, I want you to go home and really think about it. This isn't a kind of restaurant that's for everyone. You know, give what? it some really great consideration. And then... 
I'll reach out to you tomorrow and you can let me know if you want to work here. Holy shit. Yeah. That's cool. It was floored. So you have the job. It's just like you have to go home and act cool and say yes. Yeah. What year is this? Uh, this was for the last year that the restaurant was open. I was say, it was okay. before the there was any announcement of closing. Right. But it was at the, for the last year. So you got a year on the floor. Mm-hmm. And then after that? Um, after that, it was, had been really intensive. I decided to go back to retail and take a little bit of a breather. The funny thing about going to, back to wine retail after having worked in a restaurant, it's way too slow. It yeah, almost right. seems a little boring. Right. It, well, you, you get, I mean, restaurant, it is, let's get ready for service. Let's do, let's do, I mean, all the bricks and mortar stuff of inventory and ordering and tasting during the day and staff tastings and da-da-da, staff meeting, and then bang, 5.30, it's showtime. From 5.30 till 11.30, 12.30, 1, you're just on. Yeah, right. And stores are just like, let's hang around and look out the window. Right. It's like, hey, it's 10 a.m. on a Wednesday. Like, no one wants to talk to you about wine. You're going to dust shelves and face yeah. bottles. And it was like, okay, I can't, I can't really do this. This isn't really what, I, what I'm looking for. Um, and then uh, Italy was coming to Chicago. And they were going to open a fine dining restaurant at the one in Chicago called Bafo. So I was like, I've always, I love Italian wine, but I want to know more about it. What better way to really Mm -hmm. master Italian wine than to jump into a program that does nothing but Italian? And I applied for that, and I got the job as uh, the wine manager for the fine dining restaurant. So how many years there? I was there um, just short of two years. Well, so it's... A lot of days, chances to drink a lot of good Italian juice. Yeah, you know, you can't really complain about that, getting to taste older Barolos and really get your finger on the pulse of that. It was really great experience. Older Barolos, you had to rub that in. (laughs) Stuff nobody can afford anymore. So how did you meet Victoria? How did you hear about this gig in New York and what brought you to town? Um, Well, the very first wine shop that I worked at in Chicago was a place called Lush Wine and Spirits. And I worked with a bunch of amazing women. One of them was Jane Lopes, who um, ended up as uh, down the line becoming a sommelier at 11 Madison Park. Really? um, And became good friends with Victoria. Jane Lopes. Where is she now? She is now at a restaurant called Attica in Melbourne, Australia. Holy mackerel. They just hired her as the beverage director in February, which I laughed. I was like, I'm finally coming to New York and you're leaving. Like, we can't seem to cross paths again. Was she under John Reagan when she was there? Not John Reagan. Who was the sommelier who was the, like, the overlord? She was it? She was the som? There were several of them. Yeah, there were several. team, yeah. Because I think there was a master som on that floor for a while, too, that's now with Danny Myers. Um... So that was the connection. She knew Victoria. That was the connection. It was, um, you know, just that chance. Victoria was going to move to corporate beverage and open the new restaurant, uh, Coat. Which opens tonight. Um, or last night. No, not yet. It uh, got pushed back I, a little bit. I don't have the exact again, date I thought just it was yet. Ju- I thought it was June 1st. Oh, man, restaurant openings are brutal. I know. You every you think everything's ready, and then... Yeah, it was going to be... I hurry this, up and wait. I have this email thread with her, and it was like... I, one, at one point, it was like May something. Mm-hmm. And then it was, no, 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 June 1st, and I have it in my calendar. One of my calendars, like, open, coat open. But it's not yet. Not yet. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay. close. Just not there yet. Okay. So tell me about... So Victoria's interesting, because there's one of these kind of... I don't want to say it's a divide in the wine world, but it, 
it's sort of the younger generational thing. This whole natural wine movement's kind of taking on its own energy these days. Um, thanks to Isabelle Legeron and Alice Firing and you know proponents who've kind of been long-standing advocates of whatever we want to call this non-interventionist native yeasts, minimal if not zero SO2. Um, and it's almost like kind of a, a religious calling, if you will. And I know that there's a lot of the young wine drinkers who may not know any better are head over heels with it. And it, within the Psalm community, like I'm, I started to see lists. I started to go to like wine stores that I knew that were really good stores. And you know, it wasn't even until like five, six years ago or that they would have a section their own section for natural wines and now you see it on menus you have a place like wild air that opens up and that's the whole menu and 10 bells was a real early one here in the city your list is not like that at all your list is just like it's delicious wine it's curative so what's your sense of that what's your sense of like the natural wine thing and you know if it makes a great product then that's great um but really what what we look for is just really fantastic wine um it's about you know the story behind it and the people who make it and just really good tasting juice because at the end of the day that's what define most guests are looking for she's got swiss wine on that list yes how did that happen i mean you must have talked to her about that how did victoria james become this advocate for um she's i believe she's been to switzerland and kind of fell in love with the wine that was there and started working to source some and bring it back because switzerland is kind of geographically isolated so yes. they consume most of their wine there not yeah. a lot of it gets a uh, exported so. Altesse is one of the white varietals, right? Yes. And what else is there? You, is it Pinot Noir? What are, what are they doing? Oh, they they have a lot of indigenous varietals, which I will totally butcher if I try to pronounce right okay. now. <laughs> um, but uh, they they work mostly with indigenous. Um, there's a little bit of Pinot Noir, but indigenous varieties. And I'm imagining because of the altitude, you're looking at wines that are high altitude wines, so they're low alcohol, they're higher in acid, the ripeness may not quite be there, a little more linear. Yeah. Yeah? So what, what are you into as a, as a wine drinker? Like, what are you stoked about these days? What's your, like, the latest thing that, because we all, I mean, my palate keeps changing all the time, and I'll discover something and just go head over heels, and what, what have you been building into lately? Um, I love uh, the Rosso de Valtellina, so high elevation Nebbiolo called Cavanesca, where it's there. We actually have an O2 Valgera on the list by the glass right now. Like, it reasonably priced older Nebbiolo, but it's from a different region, so you got a little different sense of it. It's a little more rustic, a little meatier, a little more sanguine, a little softer, not as much tannin, a little tomato leaf, but it's just gorgeous. I love those wines. They're, they're good, funky fun. And an O2. O2. Gotcha. Um, from Sicily? Oh, from Lombardia. Oh, no, I'm going to ask you, but from Sicily, what have you been drinking? Oh, I love Norello Mascalese. Yeah, me too. It's like dirty Pinot. Isn't it? Right? I know. Yeah. It's, there's, the Italians have this... My palate's really shifted away f- like, from having an extracted years and years ago when that's what everybody was drinking. It's kind of what they were throwing at us to light and lean and no oak and, you know, just, just fruit and expression. And I'm like Ruke, Schiava, uh, Norello Mascalese, you know, from Sicily, uh, Ver- Bella- Bella- Verduna. Well, I love those Italian grapes that are sort of in that Gamay Pinot mold yeah. that are just really light on their feet and fun to drink and, you know, 12.5 is that. Yeah, like some Rosese from Liguria. When you come across it, it's almost rosé. It's so light. Uh, but it's just, it's refreshing. If you ask my husband, he'll tell you I like wines that taste like dirt. 
Well, that's that's good. Well, that's you know, there's a new book coming out. I'm sure you know that Alice Firing wrote with um, Pascaline about. It's called The Dirty Wine Guide. And it's all about, it was sort of their saying, and let's look at wine, and instead of looking at it from varietals and country of origin, which is a great way to look at it, and it's been done, and it's kind of the class, let's look at it from the point of view of soil types. You know, the basic however many, eight, ten ver- soil types that there are and combinations thereof, and talk about what that does. And so, that's in- what's your husband? Is he in the business? Um, he does IT for restaurant groups. So... He's kind of on the fringe of the business, so well, he, he but gets cl- it. But close enough to get it. Yeah. So what's a day in life now that you're in Victoria's shoes at Piora? What are you doing? You're doing staff training. You're tweaking the list. You're doing tastings. You're meeting with vendors. All of it. Yeah. It's All great. that. And I again, I can't speak for Chicago and the America's kind of chopped up in terms of distribution and laws, but kudos to you guys in this business now. I'd love to hear your opinion of it, but it just seems to me like there's never been a better time to be a psalm, a wine drinker, a consumer of wine in America now because there's just better juice all over the place from all over the place. Yeah, it's, people are sourcing from more regions than we've ever seen before, which is fantastic. You know, you're getting better quality products. Um, there's a lot of importers and distributors that are starting to do direct import. So you're starting to see some of the prices go down on things, which is also great. You know, like uh, we're big proponents of champagne. So we have really great champagne prices because we want you to just drink bubbles. It makes everything better. Yeah, it's true. And it, and I, I, it's funny. I was just in champagne for the first time last year. I mean, I've always felt as a chef and a wine drinker, that it, I mean, if you look at Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and Pinot Meunier, well, Pinot Meunier is like the outlier grape, but Pinot, Char- Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, are like everybody knows those grapes. They're super food friendly. And yet, I was always trying to get uh, Americans to think of champagne not as a toast before dinner, but with food. Right. Like, it works. Like, the grape varietals we know pair really well with foods. Yes, it's got some bubbles or mousse, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, with fatty dishes, with cold meats, with cheeses, with seafood. I mean, it's it's perfect. Like, drink champagne before dinner, with dinner, after dinner. Like, just don't stop. Right. It's it's There's there's different styles of it. It goes yeah. with different parts of the meal. Um, I learned at the restaurant I was at, the last restaurant I was at in Chicago called Vera, it's the same with sherry as well. Because we did it. 18 different sherries by the glass there. Um, and champagne and sherry have a lot in common, but they all have this range that you can do an entire meal with them. And I wish more people would recognize that because it, yeah, it's not just for celebration. It's not just for a toast. It's not just for your cheese plate at the end of dinner. You know, a good aged Blanc de Blanc champagne can go great with, uh, a porcini crusted ribeye. Like, <laughs> Which Try is, it. <laughs> right, which is something you would not normally think. Right. Because you're, you know, you've got blood, you've got fat, where, how's this going to work? And the answer is, whoosh. Yeah. It's going to cut right through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. I keep forgetting you have that great wine that I guess I, I should drink more. Next time I'm up here, I'll have to concentrate on that. Yeah. You'll be there. We're going to be with you in a couple of weeks. Absolutely. All right. Thank you for coming out. Uh, we didn't get to tasting wine, but that's okay. We're going to taste wine in a couple of weeks. So hopefully, I guess I'm going to have to check back with you guys to see if coat when is it, it's going to open do we have a date do they know you were there i don't have a definite date yet okay i'll get a hold of victoria 
no. tomorrow or later today. Thanks so much. Thank you. Um, well, and welcome to New York. When did you move in? Uh, I moved in April 1st and started the job April 4th. And you, you live? In Chelsea. Okay. So you can walk, basically. I walk to work, yeah. Good for you. Well, congratulations. Welcome to the city. Right, thank it's you. A, it's a fun, fun place. I'll see, you, I'll see you at Piora. Christy Furman was my guest. She is the sommelier at P-I-O-R-A. That's the spelling of the restaurant, Piora, um, on Hudson Street. And it's a great. The chef's great. I love that. Love you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Stay tuned. We're going to have a spot right now for the people that put this show together for us and help this, this uh, network financially. And then it's, it's going to be a pleasure to have the first time out here in Bushwick on this show, Ernest Lapore, who is the... Um, He's the guy that runs Ferrara Bakery. So we're going to go into the Ferrara story in a couple of minutes. It's a great one. Stay tuned for that. Hey, folks, Mike Kalameko here. Everybody knows that great cooking really starts with great ingredients. And these days we have so many options to choose from. Well... I go back to the Colavita family brand for years, and there really is a Colavita family behind this brand. I got their story long after I started using their products. Back in the mid-80s, when I was the chef at the Ritz-Carlton here in New York City, one of the things you can do as a chef is order your own food. You do the purchasing, and we switched olive oils to Colavita. Uh, when I had my own restaurant down in Cape May, New Jersey, The Globe, for years, that's all we ever poured at the table. That's all I ever cooked with. And then when I started my PBS show in 1999, I thought, you know, if I'm going to look after underwriting and funders, why don't I go after products that I, I actually use at home, that I actually cook for my family with and in my restaurant with. I've been working with them for 15 years with the PBS series and now with Heritage Radio. The Colavita family goes back generations in Italy. They make their olive oil from great sourced olives, traceable source olives, just south of Rome in Molise province, Abruzzi, which is where my family hails from. Since then, their family's moved here, so there's Colavita is living in Rome. Colavita is living in America. It's a great, trusted family brand. It's the olive oil I use, and I recommend you try it as well. Sorry. Hey, welcome, Alf, uh, Ernest Lapora. Thank you so much for coming in. I've been a huge fan. I, I, I think I remember visiting your store on Grand Street when I was a little kid. My dad brought me up to one of the early trips. We grew up in Philadelphia, so it was, let's go to New York and Little Italy. I was like, whoa. And now it's ironic because you've had that, your family, your fifth generation, 1892, the business started. Um, and your address is what, Grand? 195 Grand Street. And I live on 500 Grand Street, so the other side of town. Past You're Essex, east of us. East of us, um, almost almost to the East River. Right. And so my, my road, every, every, every week when I, I drive up on Monday, Tuesday, go home on Friday, Saturday, and you know we're all creatures of habit, I drive the same way. So I come out of the Holland Tunnel, swing around the tunnel, make that thing onto Canal Street, make a left, go up to Grand and make a right, and now that the construction's over, because you guys were living in a nightmare for like... So were you. I, they, it's, it's heading my way. But you know what they did? They're building another style of American Express on the West Side Highway, and they had to balance the water out to your side. That's why they rebuilt the water main. That was the story. And so, because the water comes in on Center Street as the third tunnel. We are in one of the oldest sections of the city, and I was speaking to the Monsignor at Old St. Patrick's Church. Lincoln's team, President Lincoln, wrote addresses in Old St. Patrick's Church. Jeez. It should really be called 
it's the original St. Patrick's Church, and the new St. Patrick's Church is uptown. And it was this area where people came for religious or spiritual freedom and freedom of thought from government. So we live in this very Renaissance neighborhood that's constantly rebirthing itself. When you really think about it, so we're Italians and Jewish people were the last big culture. Yep. That was there, and it was really Anglo, Irish, and Dutch. If you look at the names, it makes sense. There is no really, until the Italians really stuck in there, and that's one of the things that made Ferrara great. Everybody came to Ferrara's looking for jobs, and they would go to Mr. Ferrara, who was an accountant, who was a bricklayer, who painted, and it was a big social club in its first ages, but that's our neighborhood. And that's why so many artists are drawn to our neighborhood. Yeah, it's got a real, it's got a, a real special feel for it. So I drive past your building all, every week. It's, just, it's, it's funny. See that Ferrara sign? Somebody, you got the water water tank on the top that somebody painted. Yes. And you've been there. And I think I just wanted to get this out and on the record because I think there's really a misnomer. You've been around forever, and Little Italy. Talk about change. I mean, as of 15 years ago, it was Chinatown North, except basically for your block. Um, which I have to think, my cousin Gabriella, and my uncle Alfred. This is from my father passed away in 82, 83. Mm -hmm. And Uncle Alfred and Gabriella stood the helm. And stayed. And stayed when that neighborhood was going through this rocky motion. Yeah. And helped keep literally great. Yeah, you guys are like the anchor. Yes. I mean, you own a fair amount of the real estate on that stretch of block between Mulberry and what's the next one over? Mulberry and Mott. Mulberry and Mott. Um, Lou DiPaolo, one of the great OGs. The, the best. He's the best. And, the best. And it's funny. He I mean, goes back to Italy. He's on our block. There's 400. There's four 100-year restaurants or uh, Latticinis or Salamarias. It's one of the unique parts in the world where you can walk into Palos, who goes to Italy himself. He picks his cheese. He brings it out. His warehouse is in Staten Island. He brings it all in himself every morning. And the Italians go to him for an education. Yeah, no, he's, he, you're right. He's the ambassador. And, and he was the first guy. He did the paperwork so that the first spec could come into America because it wasn't allowed. The FDA didn't want spec here for whatever reason. So he got the guy, found the guy, said, I'll do that. I'll help you with the paperwork. We're going to bring this stuff in. We got. I mean, he's been, he's that dedicated. And I, I can't think of anybody who's more go-to. If I've mozzarella got a, every day. Yeah, I know. His father used to scare me. When I was a little boy, they used to smoke the mozzarella out in the street in the big drum. I used to be afraid to go get my lunch in there. And he'd say, Ernest, I was afraid of Anthony, my father. I'd say, my father was cream puff. That was his nickname of Villanova. And he says, no, your father was tough. I said, no, your father had that face. But they loved the cheese business. Yeah. Just like my family, we're bakers from Avellino, from my grandmother's side and my grandfather's side. So we're very pure blood. Myself, well, there's eight great-grandchildren. I'm one of them that have this great love for pastry. And I have the pleasure of being here with you today. No, it's, it's so what I was trying to say, and I, I, of course I digress because I'm famous for this, is I, I think, unfortunately, Little Italy now kind of is a characterization of itself. It's, it's full of tourists. For restaurants to survive, they kind of have to be like eleven ninety nine. all you can eat lunches. It's kind of, in that sense, I think it's, it's suffered. And with it's that, it's changing it, well, because the rents are changing. Well, I, I, so it's a survival of the fittest now, because you can find great Italian food in a lot of places, and a lot of great young chefs can't afford a Manhattan rent. So I had fantastic pizza here today. Bushwick. This this is in Bushwick. I thought I was sitting in Naples. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I sat outside in the sun and enjoyed it. 
I actually thought I was at the Quisi Sana in Capri well, by the I'll beach. Let the chef know that. We'll send him a link to this. Thank <laughs> you. But your tour, I think people think that you're like a touristy. It's 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 a myth. We did a we did a PBS show with you maybe ten or twelve years ago, early on. Um, the only thing I could say to that, and I say this because many people say that after 125 years, two friends have told two friends. But so was the Vatican, and so was the Louvre, and so was St. Petersburg. You're, I walked in there. And I love to feed everybody the love is what my grandmother taught me. It's, There's nothing like when you walk in the door and you, you know if I'm keeping up what my family does, which is not an easy trick to retrain the new team, the new skilled workers. This is the way my family made it in the right. 1800s. Right. And keep to that and make sure that I can pass it on to my nephew, Anthony, He's going to be 30 on Monday. He's my successor. So I'm 52. I have, what, another 8, 10 good years in me? You have to start training it up. And so we're 125. Anthony will make it to 150. And my brother's son, Jet, will bring it to 175. Between all the family fights we're going to have, as long as we leave, I joke, but I'm saying we're going to fight. We just have to leave this gentleman so you can come back in the door. And my uncle Alfred taught me that. It's a great business. It's a great in the. So you walk into Ferrara. There's the glass counters. There's seating upstairs, seating downstairs, and then behind that, behind those swinging doors, there's this amazing kitchen. And it's like you. This is what my, my what I was trying to get out there. You go in that kitchen, and it is stand mixers. You've got chocolate that's being tempered. You've got flour, butter, eggs, sugar, vanilla flavorings. I mean, it is a pastry the shop. You're doing this from there. 1926. It's still one of my favorites. It's an old Hobart. Then we go from 26. And we start moving forward through pre-Mussolini. <laughs> I have all my grandfather's equipment, all my Uncle Alfred and father's equipment, then all the equipment Uncle Alfred brought for the more the Carpegianis forward. We didn't start using the Carpegiani machinery until the late 70s, early 80s. And the one thing Uncle Alfred taught me was buy the right machinery and product. Do not skimp. Well, it shows. It's really, I, I, I just can't overemphasize if... People want a great cannoli. It's the place to go. If you want, you know, you, you've got in the summertime now. You've got the the gelato outside. You're fully tell. I, I mentioned before the show is my mom. It was her favorite. There's pastry. one man in Naples <laughs> who sells about twelve to fifteen hundred pieces a morning. Fully tell. It's fully tell. He's the man. Outside of Ferrara, and there's another cafe that Ferrara looks very similar in Naples. And I have Italians come in and compare me to him all the time, which makes me feel good. Yeah. And my Uncle Alfred was in two days ago. He's going to be 80. Um, he's going to be 79 on July 8th. And he checks this Foyadella out every time he comes in. And sometimes I get the super high five, and sometimes I'll get a look. Uh-oh. But as a chef, you got to love being critiqued or get out of the kitchen. <laughs> no, they did a documentary on it, didn't they? Um, yes, they've done several. Okay. Because I remember I was at the Fancy Food Show a couple of years ago, and I just there's bumped a, into him, and there was a cameraman following him around. And I'm like, what's going there's on? There's a and documentary coming out this, under this Fancy Show, a, a piece of his whole life, and what he's done for Italians, bringing olive oil in when they really thought it was a guinea. Yeah. And it was a guinea because Italians like to be paid in guineas. They understood guineas a form of payment and not dollars, and that's how we got received the got the name. And you were a WAP because you were without papers. So you got an outline, or you were with papers, a wasp, a white Anglo-Saxon, is something different. So in Ellis Island, that's where everybody came to Little Italy, and you didn't have papers stand over there. You have papers you can start moving forward. And that's how we got these names, yeah. which is really interesting. Yeah. You're going to do a book on the, um, on the history of the family business. 
Decade by decade. Decade by decade. Well, and you, talk to me about some of the things you discovered. I mean, one of the things was going back. It's so hard to think of New York, in, you know. So, <laughs> so, I mean, New York's changed in my lifetime. I moved here in 82, and it's changed so much since then. We were just talking about the old neighborhoods, the Lower East Side, where I live now. and where you, you're, you're, Now it's a big social city where it was a working city. Right. But where we always lived was a community. Yeah. That There's something about the Lower East Side that's fun and homey and renaissance and artistic and when I was looking back, I know my grandmother, her name was Ida, she was born October, Columbus Day, October 12th, 1912. So she would sit there and teach me what happened. Ferraris was a social club. It became a legitimate business in 1892. Before then, it was a coffee shop where men came and were looking for work. So then I started looking at when the diesel engine was invented and it was 1892, Rudolf Diesel invented the biodiesel engine, which was really interesting. So then I started going back and saying, oh, this was a horse and carriage business. Then I went to see Edison when he brought the grid to Manhattan. Oh, this was a gas-run lighting business. I said, so we really had an, an iced box. And no wonder we made so many biscottis and we were baking so fresh. And my grandfather would teach us to bake fresh small batches, bake fresh four batches. Hey, they didn't have the refrigeration right. that we had today. Right. And so Uncle Alf would say, bake fresh small batches. It's okay to be out of pastry at the end of the night. So why would we look for a sfoyadella, which is a morning pastry, at 10 o'clock at night? You know what you're going to get it tomorrow morning. I'm going to have to give it. I take a chart every day, and we give it to a hospice. But why create waste? Right. So making it fresh every day has always been the Italian method, even with the mozzarella. Today we eat fresh, then we let it dry, and we make different Cacciacavallo or right. you make something out of it. or right. something to, and we make sure it goes someplace is really our mentality as Italians as most Europeans yeah as, and as, as small business people because you know the profit, profit margins are thin and you're basically stacking pennies Correct. so the more pennies you can not put in the dumpster and, and, and you know utilize stupidly and it's that's not how you make money cheap today I, I, well, I can't say during the Great Depression, so Ferrara made a tremendous amount of Tironi provisions for the war. Yeah, this is a story I want to get to. This is a, just stop there for a second, because I don't think people... Talk about that, because there was, during World War II, and it wasn't, you and I don't remember this, but everything was rationed. Most of the men were at war. I mean, factories just like, I'm a guitar collector, and Gibson's production so went down this 90%. Is, this is the truth. I'm sitting at my grandmother's table. This story, tell this me this. This story. And she tells me, my grandfather, Pietro, Peter Lapori, he comes home, he sends a telegram home. I'm going to be late, but I'm going to be safe. And my grandmother was nervous. She got on the boat with England's gold, because they sent it all to America, because Germany was knocking on the door, and they had to keep the finances. I still can't figure out he knew where. He was so politically savvy, and he serpentined all over the North Sea before he could get back to New York with the gold, because they couldn't take out all these ships because England would have been bankrupt. He got here. They were moving the gold as Mussolini was coming up. He told my grandmother, this is the machinery we need from Italy. And my grandmother thought he was sick. And we brought over all the machinery from Italy and started becoming manufacturers. Once we became manufacturers, we made war provisions for all the Italians that were at war, and the government granted... My grandfather, the rations. Right, which was, which, could the, I mean, there weren't eggs in After the Roaring Twenties, the right. 1930s, the beginning of the 1930s, the stock market fell. There were no provisions unless you had a military contract. And you guys. And that's that. how we jumped that war. That was World War II. Right. I'm still trying to understand how we jumped through World War I, the Korean War, the Vietnam War. 
then the, the, you know we're still looking for peace in the East. And when we look at Ferraris' decades, what what happened is really interesting. It's like a time in a life. What was going on in New York on the Lower East Side with Ferrara? What was going on in the presidency? What was going on in Russia? What was going on in Italy? It's it's truly amazing in the course of time. So we spanned three centuries as a whole, my family. The 1800s, 1900s, and now the 2000s. And my nephew, Jet, God willing, will see it. We can possibly make 200 years. What we love about it is the tradition. You never really get to own Ferraris. You become a great steward is what I have to teach them. That's a good way to put it. You have to go do what you love. That's Ferraris. And you still have to do your own businesses, too, because you can't own it. You have to pass it on. Makes sense. Makes sense. So, so my grandfather used to gamble the almonds sometimes and the sugar. So he used to have these big games. He could gamble buildings. But the, the, the almonds and sugar had four times the value because the other bakers in the neighborhood can turn it into product. They didn't want money. Well, there was a big bull laking going on back then because there was the, the, we weren't allowed alcohol. I forget what the proper term is. And so there was either illegal alcohol and almond, sugar, wheat, the government took it all under control. At that point, who became Crisco came to my grandfather to make vegetable shortening, and they proofed it all with him because they needed to give the lard for provision for the army. So they had to come up with another product that could work as well as lard. And that's how Americans went to shortening or Crisco. And, then, and margarine as well. And margarine. At the it was all because period. of World War II, needing that energy for the soldiers to carry their packs up the hills. It's crazy, right? Really interesting. The New York Post did a piece when we had to get rid of trans fat. I said, listen, I opened the book. I look at my grandfather's original recipe. It said lard. There's no trans fat in lard. They said there's not enough drama. We're leaving. I said, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, we've, it's come full circle, right? I mean, we're back to lard and butter in a, in a huge way. The body way. understands lard. Yeah. Shortening is much complex. It's much more away from the originalness in, in the Italian diet. It's always about how close to the way God grew it that we can... Our cuisine is based. So this is great. You've got succession. You, you, you're Do you close any days or are you open three sixty? Easter. No, sorry, Christmas. One day. One day. Uncle Alfred decided that it was fair to the team to close on Christmas. And then we close at least five to ten days every year just to paint and clean. Mm. Depends on the winter. But we need at least, you can't do it in less than four days to give the whole cafe yeah, right. a it's good a, spanking. Right. It's the a kitchen's space. 125 years. When you come back, you see I retiled it. It's, it's really vintage New York, and I kept it that way, and I love everybody to go back and see how we did this. The Universal, which is one of the best bread ovens, that's from 1950. I will not let this go. There is no equivalent replacer. There's my grandfather's... Who repairs it? You still get parts? You still have guys come out to fix Eastern it? You got a European guy? men, it's like making jewelry. Right, they make stuff. They have to hand make all the, the wheels. It's like a, um, an old-fashioned fob watch with the way this oven really yep. works. And they have to come in, measure it, and they have to craft it. All my grandfather's machinery, I'm just having this truthfully machine repaired. That's the honey balls at Christmas time. And nothing, it has all these brass tips. Nothing makes it with that old American metal. It's just remarkable. And then the Italian mixers, they have a different balloon whisk than we do. And I would say as a kid, this always makes the best whipped cream. This always makes the whipped cream. And I thought I was crazy. Then as I started cooking, I'm like, oh, that whisk is shaped differently than our American whisk. And their balloon whisk is different. 
It incorporates you, more air. Just gets it incorporates it. more air without making the heat so the whipped cream can stay cooler. And it works on a double clutch system. So you like are driving a stick shift with the arms, the, the clutch and the arm is on the steering wheel. And you're driving at the same time. That's how you have to move the clutches for these machinery. It's really interesting. The cannoli machinery that we use is all my grandfather's. The pans my uncle brought, I cherish them. It's amazing. It's amazing. You know, when, when this book is in your head or are you writing it down? No, I'm writing this down. It's going to happen. Absolutely. Thanks. You got to do this. It's such a great story. It's really a tremendous amount of love. And I mean, Lou like Paolo wrote his book, and then my, my guys at well, we'll uh, Tyrone, Russ which, and Daughters wrote his, his book. Great book. Great yeah, oh, Mark the smoked salmon there is amazing. Yeah. I, I walk there in my Uggs. So, <laughs> yeah, I love so that. I'm a low east side guy that walks there because I live off a house in the street. They are classic. Yeah. The, so the Tironi, just wrapping up, my grandfather understood the value of the Tironi, which is this nugget. Yeah. It really came from Africa through Spain into France's nugget down to Italy. Used at Christmas time. And my grandfather, Mr. Ciccatelli, took this product. And Mr. Ciccatelli with Cento, they really brought Italian food to Philadelphia and brought it across. Colavita came in in a big way and helped us nationalize Italian, I can say. But our forefathers, the Ciccatellis, the Laporis, uh, Mr. Fea, uh, there's been a lot of men. Now it's very fashionable that hit it. And then it was with the nugget that my family really made it huge, this nugget Taroni. I grew up in West Philly. My grandmother's house always had those little individual boxes of the Taroni. Correct. Little ones. You open them up, there was a little piece of like thin, waxy paper. Like it's a, like the Eucharist paper. That's exactly right. You peel and that off, and I just remember eating those as a kid. We could only get it from Italy. We used to make it all at 197 Grand Street. And then Rick Ciccatelli, he brought that division of the business. And he had it all made in Italy to make sure, because there was a transition point where we couldn't keep the stability correct. So my family and Rick brought it all back to Italy and made it in South Italy. And that's one product that my family loves. We are, I, I would have to say, we're just Taroni's in our blood. Yeah, I was going to say this. That's what, they, that's what the girls... But that's, that's made a vague way. So when we're talking blood. about, and all the, all the old timers, how to understand how to use an egg white to make money... Yeah. And Taroni's egg white based right. at the end of the day. And ricotta is whey based. It was high protein, low right. fat. Right. And today's day, unless you think creatively, you can't afford to hire someone less than 15 to $20 an hour because they can't afford to feed their kids. So we really have to be using our brains to keep up and to feed our team. I think we have the same challenges that we had back in the early 30s again. There's no free lunch. Indeed. Ernest Lepore, pleasure to have you out here, man. Great. Keep up the great work. We love what you're doing. And I'm, I mean, every, every week I drive past your, your building and I think, why don't I have this guy? I'm going, come on. We, we had you on PBS. We Get love you, out here. you. No, thanks so much for coming and my on. Cabri- my cousin Gabriella sends her best. Tell her I said hi. I'm going to come in the store and say hi one of these days on my bicycle. Be well. We'll be re- back with my next guest in a second. Thank you, sir. Like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. 
Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. Hey, welcome back. My guest in the studio now to wrap the show up is Lisa Suriano, who holds a Master of Science in Nutrition and Food Science from Montclair State, in the first state of New Jersey, yes. in, in beautiful Montclair. Mm-hmm. And is involved in the New York Coalition for Healthy School Food. She is involved with her father's business, Joe Civita, um, who I want to get the Four Seasons connection because he and I have a connection there. Oh. I want to figure out what that is. But congratulations because is it vegification? Vegication. Vegication. So what you're doing is your dad has this company that brings, I mean, what he's been doing to make a living yes. is by doing food service Sort of catering or the cafeteria program for private schools. Yes, throughout um, Manhattan and Brooklyn mostly uh, for he'll kill me for saying this, but over forty years now. Which, which is great. So what he was, what was he doing at the Four Seasons? Because I was, was there then. He was um, he was a chef uh, working um, in the in the kitchen. What and years? It was gosh, okay. Uh, how to be before I was born? So um, very late seventies. Okay, he had been before me. But Seppi Rankley was still the chef. Okay. Okay. Um, yes, uh, I think about 78. Okay, uh, but that was way, way before I got there. I got there in 82, so mm-hmm. four years before I think I you there. probably just, just missed each other then because he was already working in the schools at that point. What got him into that? So he's working in fine dining. The Four Seasons at that time was one of the great restaurants in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how did he segue from that to saying, I've got this other idea? It wasn't so much an idea as um, I believe one of, one of his mentors, uh presented the opportunity for him because the uh, the Brearley School on the Upper East Side mm-hmm. is a girls' school. Yes. Um, they were looking for a chef manager. And I, it's, I believe it was one of his mentors that, that presented the opportunity to him. And he had just gotten married and had his uh, my sister, uh, his first child. So he was looking for a sort of better quality of life. He wanted the summers and the weekends off. He wanted to be able to get to softball games and dance recitals and things like that. So, a um, familiar tale. I was in the business, started at 13. And by the time I was in my 40s, I had two kids, two sons, and um, had done everything I wanted to do. And I just remember looking at my wife, who was a pastry chef. She ran the restaurant with me and mm-hmm. saying, let's just sell this shit. I don't, we're either going to be good parents or good restaurateurs. We're, we cannot it's, be both. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. And I got really – it was really, it, we had a seasonal restaurant in Cape May, New Jersey, which we ran seven days a week from June, July, August into September. And it was just like after like three or four years, you know, I'd see my kids in the morning. They'd be sleeping. i come home at night. They're asleep. And I'm feeding all these families. And I'm like, what the fuck am I – this doesn't work. Exactly. Like, is, where's my family yeah, Where's right? Mm-hmm. Is, I'm looking at one chance to do this. Let's do this this right yeah so what so you got into so obviously you grew up in a, a food center family. i did i you know i grew up probably you know well before it was probably legal for me to be in the kitchen but you know dipping strawberries and arranging fruit platters and passing hors d'oeuvres and doing because we do all the catering um for the schools all their all their catered events so he used to bring me in to do stuff like that and then sunday was always our day to cook at home at home right. so he was that was sort of dad's cooking day so yeah. um you know he would experiment in the kitchen and that was sort of a time that that we bonded and um i would learned you know so everything tell me about, about your cooking. business because we're trying to get well up until recently there was some <laughs> interest <laughs> with, with schools and, yeah. and changing things but uh, we forge we forge ahead <laughs> yes we forge ahead there's a bump in the road right now yes but what got you into this space um i as i said i always loved cooking right. um my my grandparents uh, were from Queens, and my dad was born in Queens, and my grandfather had a farm 
um, there. So he was really a farmer um, in Queens, if you can imagine that. (laughs) There is still one working farm in Queens. I think it's like a museum or something. Um, Yeah, yeah, they eventually sold it. But um, my father moved us all out to Jersey. We lived together, and my grandfather turned our backyard into a farm. So I grew up. Old school Italian. He was an first generation. He was an first generation. First Mm -hmm. generation. Gotcha. Yeah. So, um, you know, I just grew up with in his garden gardening with him. So vegetables were really a part of my, my world. Um, so I always, you know, was very interested in, in produce and cooking. And then when I was in college, I got more into fitness and nutrition and health. Um, and my father's business was growing when I graduated and I was sort of hitting the pulse of nutrition and understanding what was going on. And he knew I could talk food and business. Um, so he asked me to come help him navigate what was sort of about, I guess, 12 years ago, the whole healthy school food movement was really you know, starting to take fire. So I was sort of helping him to navigate that. And as I was doing that, I was looking at how the kids were just not touching the vegetables and we were putting them on the tables for, um, you know, to serve them and they were getting wasted. And that's the last thing that you want to do um, is waste food. So that's where the idea for vegetation came in for me. So how do you get kids stoked about vegetables? Um, it's actually a little bit easier than than one would think. Because there's that one, do you remember that woman, I hate to interrupt you, there was, I, when I was doing Radio WR, there was a woman that sent me a book and she lived out in Westchester. It was kind of controversial and like she would sneak vegetables into her. Yeah, that was a, um, that, that's a way of doing it. But it just uh, seemed, sure. it seemed like inherently dishonest to me. It is. Like if you want a kid to eat a blueberry, don't like eat blueberries. Mm-hmm. Don't mash them up and sneak them into like a hamburger or whatever. I mean, she had all these tricks and I'm thinking that's just like, I don't know, like A, I'm a parent and mm-hmm. I don't like this. Yeah. And then B, like I'm a chef and that's like a weird relationship to have with food exactly. is, oh, I got you to eat this stuff, but you didn't know it. You didn't know what I it mean, was. Yeah. Carrots are good. These There's things are great ways to make, so you know, you more foods, so- more nutrient dense right. when you use purees and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, however, for me, I think it's about it's about familiarity and exposure. Um, so what I started to do with the program, we call it a culinary nutrition education program because I found that it's so important for kids to be able to take ownership of the food and also to just just become comfortable with it. Um, I mean, have you ever seen a kid pick off parsley that was garnishing the top of something just because they weren't familiar with what parsley is? Um, research shows us that it takes 10 to 15, uh, 12 to 15 and sometimes more exposures to a new food before a child becomes familiar enough with it to choose it on their own. And in a chicken and french fry world, chicken finger french fry world, we're not getting those exposures. So they're not, you know, kids are not growing up with huge gardens in their backyards like I did and picking a raw green bean and eating it or, you know, taking lemon balm and basil and all these other, you know, fresh herbs. So what I like to do is get kids hands-on with it. I'll give them herbs. I tell them to rub it between their fingers and to release the the oils and the right. fragrance so now they know what it smells like and it's their little leaf so they can eat it. And then we'll make a pesto or we'll rip it into a salad. Um, and it becomes theirs because kids have such little ownership over what, you know, we set food in front of them, tell them to eat it. Um, and that's very disconnecting. So what I try to do is um, create that connection and create the exposure and the familiarity. It kind of reminds me... I think it was 2001 or 2002, we were out in California filming for the PBS show in the early days. And on that leg of the trip, one of the stops was Alice Waters and Chez Panisse. Yeah. And her, that was the beginning of her doing that garden thing. Mm-hmm. In, Huge inspiration for her. Right, which must have been. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, and I remember her and I walking through the garden of the school, and she was, same thing. She was looking at school lunches. They were kind of depressing. And she's like, you know, this is one of the most progressive zip codes in one of the most progressive states in the world, in America. How come we can't change this? And so she approached the school and said, why don't we do a garden and give these kids real hands-on experience of 
planting seeds, watering the garden, taking care, and then eating them in the cafeteria. Absolutely. So it becomes this full circle. Yep. And that's, that's what I was, I was inspired by that. Um, but I was also doing it here. So in New York, it's where do our gardens go? And what time of the year do we do them? The students are gone. Who's going to take care of it over the summer? Right. So we've done some great things um, working with groups like the Green Bronx Machine and Tower Gardens, Stephen Ritz, to actually get the gardens in the classroom. But th- we also need to know what to do with it once once we grow the produce. What are we going to do with it? So that's where, where vegetation comes in and um, we, we're cooking. So how that. many schools are you working with now, you? To be honest with you, I can't say anymore because what I did was I put my program online um, and I train people all over the world at this point. So I am i can't even keep track of the number. So you're like a millionaire. You're, so that's the Bentley that's outside. Uh, that's, no, gosh, I really wish that there like was the Bill Gates you know, of vegetables. a brilliant um, <laughs> a brilliant budget line for, uh, for nutrition education. Um, so no, that's not really the case, unfortunately. But I have had much larger of an impact than I ever expected to. And so that I'm very, very proud of. Okay, so we're going to just, I'm going to put a different hat on for one second. So Mm -hmm. the schools that your dad and you and the company you're dealing with Mm -hmm. are private schools. Yes, JC Food It's it's the name of our very small uh, company. Right. Um, But then I I look at the overall problem, like like the school, like Jorge Galasso, who was the executive chef for the New York City school system. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's a a friend of a friend, and I've had him on the radio before. I remember he was this culinary instructor up in Vermont with the New England Culinary Institute when he came down, and he got, he got that gig, and I'm like, oh, man, because I kind of knew, like, the dirty end of that business. Mm-hmm. So the New York school system is the largest school system program it's in the, the world. It's the largest public feeder, second only to the uh, U.S. Army. Crazy. Um, and one of the dirty little secrets of the business is that the ingredients for – those cafeterias are offered on an annual bid. Yes. And big vendors take those bids because it's a hell of a lot of money. If you mm-hmm. can win, like, I used to be in this business, that's how I know this. So if you're in the food service business and you win the Texas jail bid, you're, that's great. You're, yep. you're, you're good for the year. You're right? selling 150 <laughs> containers of pineapple, mm-hmm. two a week, every week, all year long at a Texas. So sure, there it makes certain, planning easier. Right, there was certain bid. well, sort of, except, so what happens with these bids is it's like lowest common denominator. They're going for the lowest number. Yep. So... And and I think the budget. Do you happen to know offhand? Like, what's the budget per meal? Like, it's something like a dollar and change. It's yeah, and it's it's been in flux, so I I, I don't want to quote something but it's incorrectly. T- it's like nothing. It's like no money. It's like no money because it's also um, you know you have to think about the labor piece of it, and then also the dairy lobby has very stronghold. Um, so part of that has to go for milk. I think it's about thirty to thirty five cents has to go for milk. Which now you're back to probably under a dollar yeah. for the rest of the meal. I think you hit about 89 cents to make a, a full, healthy meal. Which, I mean, you and I are just rolling our eyes. Like, that's just... Yeah, I mean, as someone in, in food service, you know that that's just... I know, and I remember, like, I was, reasonable. I remember being involved in the New York bid and looking at the numbers, and it was literally a lie. It was called a reverse auction. It was live. You were on the phone on your computer, and you were just watching the numbers drop because the winner would be whoever was sitting in the chair when the bell rang with the lowest number. Yep. And I just remember, like, knowing all the years I had it, like, no one can sell solid pack apples guaranteed for 12 months at that price. There's, and, and the truth was, you you end up with dented cans and shit and exactly. garbage. I mean, mm-hmm. you just end up like... here. This is a fact. The prison system has better food in New York than the school system. Um, 
Perhaps. It does. Perhaps. My, my husband teaches at Rikers. Because so. there's kosher law, there's kosher, there's uh, halal. I mean, they actually do a better job than the school system. Yes, crazy. In, in certain ways. But there's, you know, there's problems there as well. Yeah, I know. We should, the Rikers, hopefully we close that abomination one of these days. De Blasio has been talking about it. Yes. Things move slowly in this world. So you, you have a child? I do. Yeah, I have a two and a half year old. And he or she? She. How are you doing with the eating thing? We're actually doing really well. Um, but something that... I've realized, I sort of realized this before um, I was a mom, but also now seeing it sort of um, in, in real time is that what part of what makes my program work so well is that it's really hard as a parent, like your kids just naturally want to resist what you say. And I think that's, at, you know, <laughs> about like, anything, you know, the tantrum toddler years to the terrible teenage years, that's just going to happen continuously. <laughs> um, so until you're, you know, hit your mid. 20s and then realize how smart your parents are. Hopefully, uh, hopefully. maybe. I, I, I'm, I'm blessed with that. But um, I, I realized that, you know, I would have moms come up to me and say, I've never gotten him to eat a pepper. And now he's asking me for peppers because he, w- he ate them in your class. And it's just something about the environment that we create, the empowerment, and also just being the teacher and the student is a different sort of dynamic mm-hmm. that takes away that power struggle mm-hmm. um, and gives kids the opportunity to actually try things without having to put their, you know, put their back up and have to, you know, feel like they're resisting something with their parents. Good for you. It's... it's I- our kids were really, and I think the story, I, I share this with many friends my age whose kids are now big, but, and who were, you know, really care. I mean, chef's parents, we made sure that, like, we made our own purees and we weren't buying Gerber's. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, she's a pastry chef, I'm a chef, we went to the CIA, like, we can make kids food. Yeah. So my kids were really good eaters until they went to school. And then, it, like, the wheels came off. Because once they got to school, it was, that was, I'll never forget, like, they suddenly became, like, little monsters. Mm-hmm. Because and they're, they're exposed to all of these processed foods. All this was, all these processed shoes. And then, like, the real, I'll never forget, like, the first time, because I am not a fast food person. But at some point... When you're a parent and your kids have to eat and you're traveling and you're in the car and they're screaming, you pull into a bloody McDonald's or Burger King. I mean, you just you're going to shoot yourself in the head. But the truth is you do it. it. And it's like crack. Like the first time that kid eats a burger or a fry, it's just like forget about it. Yeah. It's just like they have that figured out. The fast Mm -hmm. food people do. They do. Yeah, they do. I mean, it's just the the, even the levels of fat and and salt that they use. And sugar and all this other shit that they're sneaking in. Mm -hmm. And they're they're. have seen through brain scans what sugar does. It's the same. It has the same impact as cocaine in the brain. So it's it's that addictive. It's that you know it creates endorphins and you know that's why kids are are after sugar constantly. So many people are after sugar, and that's why like thirty percent of America is almost diabetic or pre diabetic. Yeah, yeah, really... And we used to now kids have what they used to call adult onset diabetes. They can't call it that anymore, right? Which yeah. is crazy. In mm-hmm. our generation, we saw that shift. And then I think part of the other problem was that there was that specter of. of high fructose corn syrup, as that insidiously made its way in because it was just a fraction cheaper than sugar. Mm -hmm. It was a byproduct of corn. And instead of like Pepsi's and Coke using sugar, they, and I think maybe HFC's like, but it's just, it's crazy. Yeah, it is. It's really, but that seems to be, there's a a large shift away from that, which is, which is good. And we also saw in the past several years, some of those, those upward trends of obesity and diabetes were finally at least leveling out. Uh, with all of the efforts that have been made um, for childhood obesity, so that's hopeful. Well, we can give you some credit for that. Um, maybe I, I'll take a little piece of it. There's so many people that have worked really hard 
Um, and it's like I said, that it's it's a little bit thankless, and there's really never a budget line, and you're always finding well, ways to make it work. Keep up the great work because I'm, I'm I've got good friends. I mean, Jorge doesn't do this anymore, but Bill yeah. Telepan, you know, Chef Bill. I do. Yeah, I Bill's do, great. Yeah. Bill's been involved in school education with kids, mm-hmm. and so it's a small world of like those of us that are like minded trying to improve this world one meal yes, at a time. It is. It is, and you kind of have to stick together. It can't be. Yeah. Can't well, be, uh, now more don't. than ever. More than ever. Lisa Soriano, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks great so story. Much. Um, and say hi to your dad for me. We both worked under Seppi Rankley, so maybe someday he'll, he and I can tell Seppi stories. I'm sure he'd love that. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> uh, I'm off next week, folks, so try us the week later. I'm, I'm, I have a conflict next week. Take care. That's the end of Food Talk. Bye-bye. Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Real, real, real.